In 2016, after a 108-year wait, the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series. The Cubs' journey from being a last-place team to one of the most iconic in baseball history is charged with lessons learned on effective leadership, teamwork, culture creation, sacrifice, trust, possibility, and character development. So it seems fitting that in the fall of 2018, the Cubs named Anthony Iaposi as the team's hitting coach. Iaposi began his coaching career in 2006, but prior to that he spent 11 seasons playing in the minor leagues with the Brewers and Marlins organizations. Just as Cubs fans always remained steadfast, so has Iaposi. In this episode, we'll hear more about his experiences and how they've influenced his coaching career in life. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and you're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. Welcome, Anthony. Good afternoon. In 2015, you joined the Rangers as their hitting coach. But prior to that, you worked as a special assistant to the Cubs general manager and contributed to other projects with the team. What was it like for you to watch the team take the 2016 World Series? It was you were you were really happy because you saw so many people on that field and in in the front office uh, high fiving and hugging. Um, you know, I was with the Texas Rangers Major League Club at that time, and we won ninety five games, most in the American League, and we got bounced by Toronto in in three games. And you're sitting there watching all the Cubs games and watching the, the players that we drafted and the conversation. You just go back to conversations you had with some of these kids when they were eighteen, nineteen. 21 years old and, and a couple of years later, they're, you know, playing on the, the biggest stage possible, trying to win a World Series of the organization hasn't done it in 108 years. So you're so happy watching your close friends, uh, especially with how we endured a few losing seasons at the major league level, but we've always felt confident in our minor league system and the culture that we were, we were building, um, for them to come in and, and, and do that and win it and, and be able to get a lot of texts. You text the players and coaches, but for them to uh, say, wish you were here or thank you, you know, for being a part of this, even though you weren't on the field that day, um, meant all the world to me. And right now, I just want listeners to know that your World Series ring is sitting right in front of us on the table. How did you come to have this World Series ring? Yeah, so the, so the World Series ring um, – I usually don't bring it out, but went to Rusty Two Firehouse with with Brez today and and showed the guys. Um, and now I'm excited that I yeah had the I did, it was in the bag here it was in this. the bag it was in you know I took it with me. <laughs> so after the Cubs won the World Series, it was around January, and I get a FaceTime call from team president Theo Epstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm with the Rangers now, going into my second year, and I thought you know it was a pocket dial like we all do, and I answered it and sitting with my family we're watching a movie on a saturday night and i said what's up man he said i just want to let uh i'm just calling everybody who's getting a world series ring and me and my wife kind of looked at each other like what he's like yeah you know we we, we felt you and there's some other people in the organization who uh left in, in 16 for better opportunity um to be in a dugout with another team um and we wanted to recognize you know what how you have helped us get through it. It's just, it's just so flattering, like to, to, to get a ring because as a coordinator, what I was doing with the organization for three years, I was a hitting coordinator, um, give presentations to the players, the staff, to scouting. 
uh, go out look at players with the scouts because uh, we had some pretty high high picks there with uh, Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwaber going second in the draft and fourth in the draft at that time. Um, so you're creating this culture, and I couldn't tell you how many times we talked about you know when it happens uh, to the players, which meant you know when it happens in Game Seven of the World Series, we must have said that you know 50 times a day to the players, like, but in a in a in a in a setting to where it was fun and this is what you're bred to be. This is why you're a cub. This is why we drafted you. This is why we're training you for this moment. So to get the ring is, is I, you know, I, I'm looking at it now because I, I looked at it, but I never still really like looked at it. And like, this means everything for, for me, the W flag, uh, Cubs win. So, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool still to this day. I think it speaks volumes, too, to President Theo Epstein, the fact that he reached back out to you and shared this with you. What's it like to be back with the Cubs organization now? It's it's awesome because it's the first job I've had as a coach where you're going back to something familiar. So I started coaching with the Marlins, then got the job with Toronto as their hitting coordinator, running their offense with, you know, 100 players. You're in charge of player plans helping the, the, the mechanics of it, learning the analytics, biomechanics, all that. Then I went to the Cubs, hired me uh, for that position. So you're meeting more new people. And then you go to Texas, and now you're meeting the whole relationship thing starts all over again. So now going back to the Cubs, it's more like welcome back. I mean, I can't believe how many people have said welcome back, and it's more like high fives and hugs and let's get to work and instead of trying to feel people out. You know, making sure you're saying the right things at the right time. Now you can just your freedom to say whatever you want right there because you already established that relationship mm-hmm. and being comfortable with everybody, um, especially with the players. You know, because that's that's kind of what it's about is to make sure that they're heading in the right direction. And they have a clear mind to to do what they need to do. So, um, my family's pretty ecstatic. It's getting closer to New York. Uh, it's a quick flight, mm-hmm. uh, but also my daughter who was uh, three three at the time was four. You know, even when I went to Texas, we, I always tell her we couldn't decub her. She's still Cubs, you know, wearing the Cubs hat. And, uh, she was pretty happy that we're going back to Chicago. Speaking of what's familiar and you mentioned, um, being closer to New York, let's go back to the beginning. You're originally from Queens, New York, and you attended Monsignor McClancy Memorial High School where you led the baseball and basketball teams to four city championships over the course of your high school career. In your senior year, you were awarded all city honors in both basketball and baseball, but accepted a baseball scholarship to Lamar University in Texas. What were your goals with baseball and what made you choose that over basketball? I think it was just you thought you could you could go further in baseball at that time. Um, baseball's I started playing before I started playing basketball. So, you know, I, I love basketball. I love the, the fact with those type of sports is, you know, there's pushing, there's shoving, there's, there's confrontation where in baseball, there's not so much. Uh, that's probably the only downside of it for me for baseball. That's why I always try to tell parents it's good to get kids into whether it's soccer, lacrosse, something to where somebody's pushing and shoving and you guys are yelling at each other because you, you learn to control your emotions or get out of hand. So, um, yeah, baseball was always was always that thing. Grew up a uh, family of Yankee fans growing up in Astoria, just playing in the in the in the street, playing stickball all the time, you know. Um and going to McClancy and, and your goal as a high school player was always to get to Yankee Stadium for the city championship. That was it. So by the time 
senior year rolled around. I was fortunate enough to play in the city championship. We won. We beat Severian High School from Brooklyn at the time. And then from there, a college coach was there from Lamar University, watched the game, um, went down, visited, offered me a scholarship. And then your goal as a college college player is to win the conference championship and get to the regionals and try to win a college world series. Uh, we never got that far. We won Sunbelt conference championship though. Uh, got to a couple regionals. Um, didn't quite make it to the Omaha world series at that time. Um, and then from there you get drafted and you're still, and that's kind of where it gets a little tricky because you're still trying to win. You still want to win a ring in the minor leagues, which, which I do have a few. I've been a part of some good teams, but you also have to find a way to, to get to the big leagues as well. Cause now the ultimate goal is winning the world series in the big league. So, um, played those years, met a bunch of people, got into coaching and kind of that's, uh, where I'm at now. But whenever something bothers me or you have that lack of confidence or you, you felt like you may lose an edge or that mentality, you have to really put yourself back to those times of high school or when you're playing in the parks or in the street or back at St. Joseph's and CYO where you're spending all day at the gym and not forget those times, all the time you put in training yourself, but you were enjoying it so you didn't really consider it training. So uh, those are the things that I look back on the most. You're kind of touching on something here that I wanted to talk to you about. Are you seeing athletes reaching the major leagues who were specialized or groomed for baseball at a young age? Or are you seeing athletes who had a multi-sport background? What's your advice on that? It's a combination. It's more, I would say, the more of the guys that we've drafted, even when I was at Texas, their scouting department, we're always talking probably number one word comes out, athlete. Um, do You do have some players that just play baseball um, that end up being pretty good players, but for the most part, they've all played multiple sports, at least through high school, and then maybe make their decision, you know, junior, senior year, I just need to focus on baseball, barring, you know, if they're playing football, then maybe the risk injury is higher. Is higher. Um, but we're looking for guys who, who play multiple sports that are part of teams with confrontation, a part of pulling guys together, are able to Things we look at, like running plays, like in baseball, you, you do a hit and run or you move a guy over, but it's not, you know, blue, red, and everybody has to work together to make this one play right. When you start uh, having players understand that or have done that, you realize that they really understand the team atmosphere because the only way that team could win is if the five guys on the basketball court put that play together or the whole offensive line blocks or the quarterback and the guy runs his route and he throws it for a touchdown. Um, you want guys to be able to have that mindset, total team, so that when they get in a dugout, they understand the team atmosphere. So it's it's really big for us um, in baseball to make sure that like kids play other sports. But it, when they play other sports, it also helps them physically um, by running, jumping, diving on the ground, whatever it may be. It helps them physically and mentally fall down, get up, do all these things where baseball sometimes can't offer that stuff. So you learn a lot by playing other sports for sure. What advice do you give parents or guardians during the off season? You almost have that feeling as a parent. And sometimes I get it. My daughter's only six. Like you're missing something or they make you feel like you're being left out. If you don't sign up for this, your kid's not going to get a scholarship or you're not going to go to the right school or you're not going to make the right team. And what I learned when I was coaching in the big league, especially with the Rangers, we had the most diverse team in baseball, meaning people from all over the world. We had Shinshu Chu from South Korea. 
Ryan Rua, Division Two from Middle of Ohio, Major League player, um, Dominican, Beltre, Venezuela, Elvis Andrews Odor, and we had Americans, we had Puerto Rico, um, we had Japan. So you had all these players from here, and then like if you love it and you're good enough, they're gonna find you, and you're gonna you're gonna outweed everybody else just by your performance to play. You don't necessarily have to go to this big time school or play with this travel organization uh, to get noticed or to get seen. If if you love it and you work hard and you play and you outperform anybody, you'll you'll get your chance. They're gonna find you at some point. Um, so it's to it's to not scare parents off that if they don't play with this travel, their son's not gonna make it to the biggies. That is totally not true. Uh, if they don't have year round training, that's not true either because I've coached guys from. Dominican Republic that, you know, they're not in organized ball. Yeah, they're outside playing all day in the streets and everything like that. Yeah, that's a big part of it. But it's totally not structured, which gives the freedom of the player to learn themselves. And I think sometimes today we can get overstructured to where kids, especially players, are waiting for signals from coaches. They, they're losing that instinct because we're creating a showcase player as opposed to team players who love to play the game. I want to take this a step further and then ask, like, what's the responsibility of coaches and even teachers? I believe your wife is a teacher. Yes. So in my mind, I've yes. made her like Tammy Taylor. Growing up, I had this um, unique opportunity. I had a, a fourth grade teacher who recognized that I had a natural talent, that I could sing. And she was a choreographer for the Staten Island Children's Theater Association, which was a nonprofit theater group that gave formal training to area kids. So she stepped out of her role and said to my parents, you know, your daughter has talent, but she needs to hone her skills through formal training. This program would be great. And unfortunately, my parents said, I, we can't afford the program. Right. And right. she went ahead and got me a scholarship for several wow. semesters. And I, I really appreciate that. And there, I have a lot of gratitude for that. So, you know, what sort of role do coaches and, and teachers then play for, for developing? Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a huge thing for what she did. And, and as teachers and coaches is to, is to recognize that in, in the, in the young kid, if they truly love what they're doing and, and they enjoy it and they want to become better at it. I think a lot of times it happens in reverse. The parents want so much for their kid to be good at something. They throw it on them. They push them towards something they don't really enjoy. Um, so I think for the coaches and teachers and, and parents is just kind of be aware of, of what they really love and to encourage them toward that. Because uh, we know where we want to go, but we really don't know how to get there. You know what I mean? Like, okay, this is where I want to be. I want to be a, a doctor or a, a baseball player. And you're watching TV and you're like, okay, I'm just going to go out and practice. But like, you don't know the steps of, of what you need to do on how to get there. But it's for coaches and parents and teachers who are in the job to, to help, right? We're in the job to help people get where they want to go. A coach explained to me a, a long time ago and he said, you know, where's the term coach come from? I don't know. He says, you know, it's a carriage. It's a coach. And it takes you where you want to go with the horses. And I was like, oh, then coach in the plane. You know, you sit and coach. Okay. So that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to help people get to where they want to go. Heading back to your journey then, <laughs> you uh, spent 11 seasons in the minor leagues. So you'll have plenty of experience to pull from when I ask you this next question. What was the silliest fan draw you saw? 
during your time in the minor leagues? Because I used to work for right. a minor league wow. organization, so I remember some of these really gimmicky things in, in between innings that. I, I, okay, I, I wouldn't. Say, okay, <laughs> fan draw in between innings for me is number one. San Antonio Missions tackle the taco by far. Uh, this taco comes out. He's probably about five feet tall, comes out in a go-kart from center field, and then he takes off at home plate. Once he hit first, the kid, it's usually a kid, has to chase the taco and tackle it, and the crowd goes absolutely nuts. I mean, that That's something I've never seen. So tackle the taco. You didn't by, really have to think very no, 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 hard no, no, about that. No, I, <laughs> I didn't. knew you'd have a good one. Yeah, that, by, that stands out to me because it was just taco <laughs> – and they played, I'm coming out, and he's driving around. I remember the whole thing, and we would all stand there and watch it. Um, but the players would, like, look forward to it, you know, and this this poor taco, whoever's in that costume, just got absolutely demolished uh, <laughs> by the kids, you know, and then and, and they step on and raise their hands. But there were, there were there were tons of different things in between innings. A lot of people did the same stuff. Um, but that one was by far the best. And they started letting the players interact in some things I thought was cool. Um, today you see a lot more stuff with Star Wars or Harry Potter uniforms, oh, things like that, yeah. uh, to get people in and you have to wear all the crazy uniforms, but tackle the taco in San Antonio. I think he's still there. I talked to Adrian Beltre, uh, we were Texas Rangers and I, that, when I first met him, he was in San Antonio when I was in El Paso playing. First thing I asked him, I said, man, how's tackle, how's tackle the taco doing? Is he beat up? Like he just started laughing. He's like, he caught some beatings. <laughs> <laughs> so that by far number one got it on a more serious note though what kept you going through all those years that you were spending in the minor leagues just trying to get to the big leagues you know you're trying to get to the big leagues and uh, each year you move up you know you, you have a good year you get a phone call okay you know we're going to start you at this level and the whole reason why i got in the, in the coaching i don't you know i never really considered coaching in professional baseball at all um because of the life, you know, you're on the road a lot. If you're in the minor leagues coaching, you're riding buses, you know, pay is not that great. Uh, you're doing all these things. So I was like, oh, I'm never going to coach. And then my experiences, um, finally getting to being a 33rd round draft pick, finally getting to 40 man roster with the Milwaukee Brewers going to my first major league camp. And then, uh, not breaking with the team, didn't make it start out in AAA, no big deal. And then having the, Worst start of a season to my career. Uh, within the first month, I was hitting under 200, and I was trying to fix everything mechanically. Uh, the bottom line was I just saw myself falling, falling away from my dream. So you start all this fear, this anxiety sets in. You don't know what to do. You're trying all these different things. Uh, but the bottom line is is that you see things slipping away instead of changing your mindset. Um and that kind of derailed me for a couple of years. Uh, that that start, um, trying to get back to where I would, I would try to work on my swing in the off season or do these things to help you get better. Um, and I kind of lost for like two and a half years, just kind of in the fog, to where I was this pretty good player on the verge of breaking the big leagues into somebody who just almost forgot how to play. I mean, literally forgot how to play. And, you know, didn't want to get that last that bad. That, you know. If it rained, if it rained, you were okay, you know, cause you, you didn't have to go out there and perform. And then, uh, I had a year away from the game where I didn't play. And then some things happened off the field. Uh, my mom, um, got breast cancer that year was 2001, 9-11 happened. Um, and all that stuff happened. And I just kind of sat back and was like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, um, 
get your head out of your butt. You know, this is your dream. What are you doing? You're letting it slip. You're feeling sorry for yourself. So I started emailing all these teams to get back in. And the Marlins invited me to spring training. I ended up playing four more years. And then them invited me to come coach right after I got got done playing. And actually got a minor league championship during that time, which was one of the best times ever. And it was that time where I said, you know what? I, I want to get into coaching, not because I want to help somebody hit or throw a ball. I want to be able to recognize when loss of confidence or fear sets in and try and get that in the butt right away before it's before it steamrolls. Because it, it kind of happens to everybody. Baseball is such a everyday game, as you know. It's just it's not once a week where you have a couple of days off to reflect on how you failed. You have like less than 24 hours to figure out what happened and erase it, flush it for the hitting part and get back into it next day. Um, so you're only as good as your last at bat. Whether you think you're the best or whether you think you're the worst, that's that's what's going to happen. I want to unpack the mental side of the sport in just a second. But first, what are your thoughts on the explosion of data and analytics in sports? And did your feelings change when you switched roles? No. Anything that's going to help the team win, I'm good. But there is no magic pill. You know, there's no there's no, there's no, no strictly weight loss pill, right? You got to watch what you eat and exercise, bottom line, right? Uh, people don't want to do that. We all want shortcuts to to get to where we want to go. So before you give information to a player, because that's who it's supposed to be for, you have to make sure, like, this isn't the savior. Because they feel like that, and you tell them that, and it doesn't work, because which it, which it does, because baseball is such a game of failure. It's the most negative sport ever, <laughs> right? you got to be so mentally positive to get through it and be the best self-talker ever. Um, analytics, biomechanics, video, all of it is just little – little pieces of the pie to help the player uh, improve and get better. And if you were to ask a player, you know, list the top three things that makes you a big leader, he's going to say compete. He's going to say grind. He's going to say persevere. He's going to say all these things, and then he's going to go, okay, here's, here's the things that might have helped me along the way. Yeah, I watched some video on the pitcher, knowing myself, uh, understanding the numbers of, of what they're doing to me, uh, and those things are just little pieces and sometimes guys want that info. Sometimes guys don't because then they feel they lose trust in themselves. So they don't want to rely too much on it, but they want just little doses of information to where they're going to have an edge. And if you feel like you have an edge, then maybe you're more confident, and that's where it comes into play. I mean, you have such extensive experience as a player, and that really translates to your coaching. What was that transition like for you? It was pretty easy because the whole time I was – Toward the end of my career playing, I was doing like lessons with kids. So, and that's kind of where you really learn how to coach people, right? Because you're around kids ages from six to 18. You're working off a tee. It's one on one. You're learning how to talk to people. You learn how to make them feel good. You learn them how to have honest, tough conversations with them. You learn how to talk to parents, handle parents, overbearing parents, great parents, whatever it may be. You're learning all these things as you're you're doing lessons and running camps and clinics um, so that when you get – and I was fortunate enough to where I got done playing with the Marlins and, and a couple years later they offered me a coaching job. Everybody who was there when I was playing with them for two years was coaching still. So I walked right in. It was super comfortable. You know, it's just kind of – you say hello. Again, you get right back to work. You're respectful. You listen to everything. Two eyes, two ears, one mouth, two, two, one. Right. Listen and, and see first before you speak um, and just learn as much as you can. But it was comfortable for me. It was a great time 
coming into the Marlins and I look back at that time um, out of that group we had with the Marlins when I first started coaching myself, uh, John Maley Phillies, Major League hitting coach Brandon Hyde is now the Orioles manager. Tim Cousins is the Orioles, uh, one of their coaches. Bo Porter was a manager. Edwin Rodriguez was a manager. Reed Cornelius was a Major League pitching coach. We had a great time and we all learned from each other. So I was fortunate enough to be around a cool group when I first started. What are some of the challenges of being a hitting coach? Uh, every day. Every day is a challenge, right? Cause you got. What isn't? Tw- yeah, what is isn't? Everything's a challenge, right? Every, you have 12, whatever, 12 guys on the roster. Some other guys come up and down, say 12 to 20. It's, it's so, you're trying to bring, you're trying to get a team ego, right? And have individuals, uh, egoless baseball, I guess, throughout the lineup. Because you're up there at the in the batter's box with your own thoughts, right? So, like I said before, there's no plays. So, you could feel good and and do your work in the cage, walk to the batter's box, have your walkout song, and feel great. Put your shoulders back, step in the box, look at the pitcher, and go, "Uh oh, something's not right." Boom, boom, boom! Strike one, strike two, strike three. Come back to the dugout, and that could steamroll. So, it's a lot of like really helping players get out of their their own way and that only comes with with them trusting you with, with certain conversations um being able to present to different players from all over the world um i don't know spanish on an everyday basis but i can't speak baseball spanish and get through uh to certain players um but just learning where players are from what they had to go through um is is a huge part putting yourself in their shoes um, but everything is challenging because everybody thinks they could do that job better, just like anybody else on the outside. Even yourself, you're like, "Oh my god, I, I could, I could do that better than that guy." You know, and it's not the case because you don't know what's going inside the environment. So, uh, for me, I, I love the part of trying to bring guys together in that culture and, and the environment. The environment's better; they have a better chance of improving faster. I've heard you say before, I'm a trust awareness coach. I teach accountability. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that started early on, like, cause you start coaching the minor leagues, you know, you're in rookie ball, you guys are out of college, out of high school, Latin America. Um, some, you, you're trying to teach them you have to, you have to hit by yourself. You have to go out on your own and make your own decisions. And you see players get upset on TV, maybe slam something, punch something, hit something with their bat. And it's not because they didn't get a hit. It's because they didn't trust the process. They didn't trust themselves when they, they're playing, when they got to the plate. And then they get upset. If you trust your plan, you trust your approach, and you get out, you learn faster because you talk to yourself. Okay, this didn't work. All right, I'm going to try this time. He threw this to me last. This is pitch I'm going to sit on. Where now you don't trust yourself. You don't become you don't become in the cage. You don't go to practice for improvement. It becomes search practice. And that spirals. So every day you're changing something. So you're, you're teaching, even if you don't agree with a player at some times, you gotta, you gotta back him and go, okay, let's go for it. You know, trust yourself in this. You, you're all in on it. Let's go do it. And you learn, you learn a lot with things that you believe in when it comes to hitting or baseball. Players prove you wrong. And that's awesome. And that's kind of what I want them to do. Um, and if not, they trust themselves and it didn't work then we go back to the drawing board and then we could whatever the situation or whatever the, the issue is it comes back faster the more accountable accountable you are you develop faster the more excuses less right and that's what that's what all of us so if you could teach the player to be accountable because it doesn't matter 
how many swings you t- – I've worked with guys who work thousands of swings but still can't hit. Thousands of ground balls but they can't field. So you're trying to tap into that. Why is that, right? And it becomes because – uh, the mental side of it, the, the accountability size, and but most of all the lack of trust in themselves in front of people because hitting is a sport where it's like presenting on stage in front of a thousand people. You're alone. Like you got to knock it out of the park. So when you step up there, all these things that are going through your mind, what is what is this person? Uh, do my teammates like me? All that affects your play on the field. You don't seem like somebody who shies away from challenge. I think you like any sort of challenging situation player is that safe to say yeah yeah i love challenge that's how you grow right i mean you do that as young um you know everybody would always tell them and and growing up as much as people back you to get to where you want to go the amount of people that tell you you can't do it it's quadrupled you'll never make it nobody from new york plays in the big leagues nobody nobody name one person from a story who's in the big leagues i was like whitey ford there one and that's all, that's all there was i was like christopher walken you know he's an actor does he play baseball in the movie but but for me i would see whitey ford and go okay that's i could i could kind of get there how you know let me just keep so the question is do you do it because you love it or do, is there a point where you keep doing it to prove people wrong, mm-hmm. right? So you have both those going for you. Um, so the challenge of me, you know, even being smaller in basketball, you can't, you know, you can't play it and you just try to play and find ways to win games. Um, but it's definitely challenging. I was doing a radio show in Chicago over the phone and they had asked me that. They're like, you know, it's, Hitting coach is the toughest job in sports. You know, or you're hired to get fired. And I'm like, well, that's, that's any job. You know, the, the challenge is going to a really good team in a really big city with really good players and working with them and learning, learning from them, regardless of how old they are. They're the best in their field before you even meet them. So, uh, the challenge is, is cool. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you accept it, uh, where, you learn that, you know, some other people, there are times where I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to coach at this level. I don't know if I'm going to, and just a little bit, maybe that 1% thought back to, and all somebody says, man, you've been doing your whole, and then you're like, okay, I snapped out of it, you mm-hmm. know? So I think everybody kind of goes through that, but for the most part to, to get to, to the big leagues, either as a coach or player, front office, whatever, or whatever field we're in. You have to run to the, to the challenge. Um, cause then when either way, good or bad, the outcome, you still gain confidence. Cause if it's good, you keep growing. And if it's bad, you learn from it and you keep growing. You've learned a lot through experience. What other things do you do to prepare for work and for life? Yeah. I, I, I read a ton. I try to read, uh, non baseball stuff, whether it's like we were talking earlier about individual sports. Uh, really phys- being able to physically push yourself. Um, other team sports, football, hockey, definitely uh, any type of child psychology books, um, just to find different ways and terms to, to present to the players because baseball is, is every day. So you don't want to get caught saying the same thing every single day. You want to be able to, to, to have the same message, but in a hundred different ways. And, it makes it more fun. It makes the environment better. Uh, it makes players aware of it. Uh, doing things like this, meeting, meeting you guys for me, 
is huge. Um, I know I'm going to learn a ton. So just kind of doing those type of things. Uh, and now I'm learning like my daughter just joined CYO first grade basketball where they're going to do stations next week. So I'm excited to learn how that goes, you know, even though you did it, but now, you know, it's not about you. Now it's about my daughter and the other kids in, in St. Aidan's gym on a, on a Saturday morning. So, um, you just, you just try to do things, whether it's now today's, even though you're reading podcasts, just trying to surf through it, articles, anything that's going to help you help the player get better. Like I could read something and go, Oh, I could, I could give this to Albert or I could, I could, I could talk to Javi about this or I could, Oh, Chris likes this. Maybe I could get him to think about this. So, and that just comes from anything, everything outside of baseball, not even not because they get enough baseball stuff. Mm -hmm. They get plenty of that. You know, they're going to talk to players, former big league players from all stars, hall of famers that are going to help them, uh, be better. Um, I try to give them stuff outside the, outside the realm of baseball. You work for arguably two of the best leaders in pro sport, not just <laughs> yeah. baseball, Theo yeah. Epstein and Joe Madden. Yeah. What do you think makes them so impactful? You know, I was fortunate enough, too, with Texas with, with John Daniels, who was the youngest GM before, right after Theo at 28 years old. And he's a, he's a Queens guy, too. And, you know, to be around uh, those guys, but to be around what I learned from Theo – is he's not afraid to make tough decisions when it comes to the organization. People are going to criticize you. People are going to question you when you're at the top. I mean, it's going to be a lot of negative. You got to be so strong mentally and have a great support system. Uh, the people he brings in around him is a huge support system. Um, so being with him, being able to make tough decisions, whether, you know, he loves a player or he loves a coach. If he feels that the organization is going to better, he's going to make a move. Joe, being able to work side by side with him now, I'm, I'm ecstatic. Um, the first year we worked together, you know, I was with him in spring training and then I had to do my stuff on the minor league side while the Cubs went off. I uh, wasn't in the dugout with them in 15, but being around him in spring training and talking with him on the phone now and you're just excited to learn, um, about, you know, how he continues to do the culture and uh, create not necessarily a loose atmosphere. Uh, I think it gets misunderstood. Uh, the things he does, it, it's, it's not necessarily loose. It's just, it's to get guys to relax, to perform better, to know that they, when they come to the field, they're not being judged every day because even the, the best players still could lack of trust, whether it could be front office, could it be your hitting coach, could be your manager. Uh, I think Joe helps create that atmosphere where players are comfortable, where they're not being judged. So you can just go out and really perform your best and be a great teammate. You just reminded me of something. There's a book written by um, Tom Verducci, The Cubs Way, The Zen of Building the Best Team in Baseball and Breaking the Curse, and it talks a lot about the leadership styles of uh, Theo Epstein and, and Joe Madden. And one thing that you just pointed out, freedom is empowering, yeah. was a part of this book. And the quote is, that may be the mortal sin of coaching to limit or inhibit somebody's intrinsic abilities out of them. Yeah. I think that's kind of speaking to what you're yeah, no doubt. But it's a, there's also a fine line too where you could you could lose that rope with the freedom. It's about letting the players know they're a part of something. You know, like we talked about, a part of bigger than themselves. So, but that freedom uh, to be individual. Uh, so you're not you're not changing that because players are afraid of you, you're going to change their personality. But you also want to help change behavior 
to make them more of a team rather than change their, their personality, if that makes sense. But to provide, Joe does a good job of, of letting the players provide freedom. And in turn, there's some responsibility with that, you know. Players have to be able to still get their work in. They have to make sure that they're at the right place at the right time, that they're, that they're eating right, that they're practicing right. If they're not able to do that, it's just like parenting, then you lose that, you lose that freedom. Uh, Joe does a good job of providing that freedom, uh, and hence the players work their butt off for him. The focus on character and personality is huge within the Cubs organization. So when a moral dilemma comes up, how do you help develop players and coaches to navigate it? You just remind them what, why we're here. And I think the first thing I do is sit with the group and ask, ask the players why you're here. And, and it takes two or three, you know, here because I'm talented or here because, you know, this is my dream. And our answer is no, we drafted you or we signed you to help. We think you could help this team win a World Series, whether you're 18 years old and you have to go through them. We think somewhere down the line you're going to help this team win a World Series. So you establish that right away. So things get out of whack, which they do, just like they do in families or anything else. We try to bring everybody back. And it's like, why are we here? Like, we're here to to work together. We want to be a part of something so that everybody, you know, works together. Like, when things work together, it's fun. Right. Cause you're not thinking about yourself. You think about how to help other people. And when that happens, um, it's looser. Um, you're high fiving more, you know, you're celebrating more and, and hopefully you're, you're holding another, another trophy. But it's just a reminder of, hey, man, this is what we started. Uh, understanding somebody's side of the story, trying to put yours in their shoes and figure out what point they're trying to make. Cause everybody wants to be heard. Right. We all think we're mis, we all think we're misunderstood. We're not heard enough. So you listen, congregate. Why are we here? Let's, let's grow. Let's, let's move forward. Let's take off. You know, taking it back home. I want to talk about your connection to the FDNY specifically with the Davidson family. Unfortunately, in 2018, FDNY Lieutenant Michael Davidson died in the line of duty. What's your tie? My wife's family and the Davidson family, uh, they grew up together. Uh, Michael's mother is uh, my wife Suzanne's godmother. They're not blood, as they call it. There's a, there was a group there that they their parents grew up together, and they call themselves the Fuzzins. Uh, friends and cousins come on, you know what I mean? So, you know, we're not blood, but you, you have those those friend members that you call, oh, he's my cousin, you know. Um, so that relationship um, with my wife's family, the Hessian family and the Davidson family are, are, are strong and real tight. And one of the things you learned about that whole event is how the fire department like pulls together. Like it was for me, like, you know, the whole, the whole, uh, funeral and everything they, they do for the Davidson family. Um, but Michael was awesome, man. He was this guy that does everything for everybody. Um, which is probably why he fit right in the fire department, natural leader. Um, Big sports guy, big Jets, big Mets. Uh, you still see his face. You know, we had our daughter. Our first daughter was uh, two months premature. I mean, he found his way up to the NICU room without even buzzing through the door. You know, he had his way of getting to where he needed to be um, to help somebody. So uh, there's a, uh, my wife's family member is a unique tie. Um, but he was always he was always in support of, of what our family was doing as well. How did you honor his memory? During Little League week, you have uh, you get to wear the jersey and you get to 
to uh, write whatever you want on the back of your jersey, and then you have a patch on your sleeve. Uh, you get to write, you know, they tell you write, you know, your favorite coach or who impacted you the most. Um, this past year, uh, I wrote Michael Davidson on it, FDNY. Um, and I think it's just to, to not only recognize Michael, but to recognize the whole FDNY. And I think like after that moment when I, when I wrote it, I'm like, the FDNY is always going to be on there now, you know, like after seeing, somebody uh that you truly know that's close to the family um and i also have friends that are firemen throughout the city and you you take a step back and you're like this could really happen you know like we all think we're just you know to put that on the sleeve for little league weekend is truly an honor to have his name and the fdny uh the fdny for sure i will always write on little league week for sure and this really has to do with what we've talked about in terms of being part of something greater than yourself. Why yeah. is it important for you to to share that message? I think because when you, you know, what I learned from from the whole, from Michael and the, the whole learning now, getting close with the fire department and everybody, it's like you're in that job because you want to be, you want to be bigger than something, than yourself. You want to be involved in something that's going to help people. It's going to help you grow. And there's no bigger job than, you know, a fire department or, or teacher or police officer. And, you know, for me, it's hard saying a, putting a coach into that thing because you're not implementing um, the everyday life. You're implementing, for me, coaching was always, all right, I want to coach a player. The percentage of him getting to the big leagues is really small. So I need to help prepare him. How can I use baseball as a platform to get him to prepare for job, family, endeavors off of off of baseball? Um, I hate saying the real world. That yeah, never made sense to me because um, baseball is is part of the real world, just like just like any other job. So being in something, being involved in something with a group for me personally was always something I wanted to do. I love working with people and achieving something. And it's not even like you look at the ring. So you look at this ring, and like I said, I never really looked at it because as soon as you look at it, you like think of all these conversations you had with players when or coaches uh, in the minor leagues flying around, checking on guys, uh, arguments you have with coaches. This player is not good. This one's going to make it. He's not. We can't. And it, that's what you're so excited about at the end of it when you high-five everybody. It's the ring and the trophy, but it's being able to get through tough times and pulling for each other, which makes everything all worth it, which kind of would be the same way as a teacher when a guy – a kid gets a good grade or a coach, a player does well, or uh, the FDNY goes out and, and saves lives. It's that same feeling, I would, I would assume. I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of your experience with us today and your insight. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's a blast. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire, Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF, more at ConwayShield.com.
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.